Hello, everyone, and welcome to Space Junk, a weekly podcast dedicated to the amazing hobby of amateur astronomy. Each week, we'll answer your questions and bring you the latest information and advice on the tools, gadgets, software, and techniques for maximizing your enjoyment of the night sky. Your hosts are Tony Darnell from DeepAstronomy.Space and Dustin Gibson from OPT Telescopes, a world leader in telescopes and accessories. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Space Junk, a weekly podcast dedicated to amateur astronomy, looking up at the night sky, wondering what the heck is out there and why this podcast every week, Dustin Gibson and I, uh, talk about all of these things and much more. My name is Tony Darnell from deepastronomy.space. And Dustin, are you out there in the ether tubes? Tony, Tony. There he is. You're loud and clear here from California. Got one of my good friends here with me today. Who you got there? This is Travis Burke, someone I met several years ago, and um, we've been shooting ever since. So welcome, Trav. Thank you, Dustin and Tony. Glad to be here and excited to hang out and chat with you guys. Yeah, I've got lots of questions. Travis Burke, uh, <laughs> yeah. he characterizes himself as an outdoor adventure photographer. Uh, he also does a lot of sports photography, just a little bit of everything, including astrophotography. And uh, today we're going to be talking a lot about what he what he does to take the great pictures. You've probably seen many of them uh, in, well, uh, just about everywhere. But you said recently, Travis, that you've been on Nat Geo's cover. Yeah, I was fortunate enough just recently to have an image um, used as a cover for Nat Geo Traveler. And what was, I guess, extra special for me is that it was a night photograph. It was a Star Trails shot from Arizona, this place called The Wave in Arizona. So that was the first time that they had actually used a night shot that incorporated Star Trails. So I felt very humbled and fortunate to have had the honor to have that shot on the cover. Uh, I bet that felt, I felt really great. Now I, I want to ask you a lot of photography stuff, but I got to know right up front. Once one very important thing is the life of an outdoor adventure photographer as sexy as it sounds. <laughs> Come on, be honest. What's it like? Dustin probably has a lot of insight on that, but um, you travel. I got this it, image. You're traveling the globe. You've got your camera bag and you're in these exotic places and you're just taking the most amazing photos. Is it like that? A lot of it is. Yes. And then it's a lot of, uh, yeah, I traveled in a van for four years. So I was kind of this homeless transient. Well, now see, that sounds sad. <laughs> yeah. I got to see both sides of it though. I mean, he, he did travel lived in a van and traveled, you know, the whole country for a long time in this van. I mean, it was an awesome van given, but it, um, yeah, it, it really was insane because he is doing the most epic stuff in the world. I mean, a lot of this photography, people have seen it, no matter where you are, you've seen this stuff, whether you know you have or not. And um, I mean, it's so widely circulated. But, um, you know, I think there was actually a time where we saw one of your magazines before you even knew it was there. You know, Jenny, yeah. <laughs> Jenny pulled this magazine out. And it's like Travis is in here. We need to tell him. Oh, well, that's because <laughs> he can't be bothered with that. He's too busy. To, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, it's on another magazine. So, Get out of my yeah, way. Yeah, but then, you know, cruising around in a van. But the other side of that is two the most epic locations in the world is what, you know, the, the punchline of that story is. And it's just one epic location with epic photography attached to it after the next. 
Okay, I got a lot of questions about that, but uh, let's go back to the beginning, Travis. Let's let's set the way back machine to where you're little Travis Burke. How <laughs> do you get started? How did you were you always into photography? Did it did a bug bite you sometime later in your life? How did you get started? Yeah, it's a great question. I think I always had this creative <clears throat> creative platform and I didn't quite know how to express it, but I was good with my hands. I tried a lot of different artistic mediums and actually I was taking graphic design classes and architecture classes and woodworking classes, trying to figure out the best outlet for me to kind of utilize whatever weird skill sets those were. And my parents were actually going on a hike from Mexico to Canada. It's called the Pacific Crest Trail. And I told them if they made it up to Yosemite, I wasn't even sure if they would make it that far. So I told them if they made it to Yosemite, I would go visit them. And sure enough, they were getting close to Yosemite. And I figured, you know, I'm going to buy a fancy camera. I'm going to be Ansel Adams and go to Yosemite and take all these beautiful pictures. I had no idea how to use a camera. I didn't know what aperture, shutter speed, anything was. But I went out and bought this kind of over-the-top camera at the time did a road trip up to Yosemite and hung out with my parents, but then spent a lot of time doing different hikes in Yosemite National Park, going up to Half Dome and going out into the valley at night and trying to photograph the moon coming over the trees in the valley. And I don't even think I had a tripod. Everything was blurry, out of focus. Was this and film or digital? This was digital. Okay. Um, and... But it, what I noticed is I just had a blast doing it. I loved going out at night and just being out there all alone. And it made me really slow down and appreciate moments more. Instead of just walking past something or taking a few seconds to be like, wow, this is beautiful. And then continuing on, I would sit for longer periods of time trying to capture what I'm seeing and trying to kind of work those angles. And so it really made me stay in the moment longer. And for a lot of people, the camera can make it kind of a disconnect from actually enjoying a moment. But for me, I found it almost heightened the experience and made me kind of be out there longer and soak it all in and try and capture that feeling and experience. So that's when I really got hooked and I came back to San Diego and signed up for a ton of photography classes and started assisting other photographers and just dove in like 110%. That's also a side effect of amateur astronomy as a hobby, too. You, When you spend a night under the stars, it's almost impossible not to slow down and just look. For Sometimes you might even forget you're sitting behind a an eyepiece of a telescope, and you just sort of soak it in. You just feel it, and uh, you, you become part of the uh, environment you're in, and it's really a profound experience. At least it is for me. Um, yeah, absolutely. And that's where we connected Travis and I, you know, he came into the shop one day back before I knew who he was. Jenny had been following Travis since we lived in Tennessee before we had ever even been to Oceanside. And, um, I had no idea who this guy was. I just knew he cruised in some huge van and wanted to take a picture of Andromeda. <laughs> and I was like, I can probably help. I got a scope set up at my place, you know, right down the street, just come by and we'll shoot. And then you disappeared for a while because I think you probably went out of the country or something. But it was like a month later, maybe he called out of the blue and was like, hey, let's shoot Andromeda. <laughs> and so we uh, we spent that first night 
shooting um, shooting narrowband actually because we were in the city, and uh, from there it's it's just like you were saying. I mean, astronomy does that, and then if you're already a photographer, it's it's not a big leap. And if you appreciate, you know, capturing light in that way, it's very very addictive. Starting to do astrophotography and realizing that that challenge is so great and the reward even greater. And I'll bet you guys didn't talk much, did you? And if you did, you whispered. Because that's what you do in the night. You don't like, hey, man, that, what that exposure are you got it on? You don't do that. No, it's like, you're I don't know. Did we whisper to each other? I don't know. I don't know. I do. I'm going to say I, no. I'm going to say we talked. Oh, okay. <laughs> There's a lot of moments where you're. Just, I'm just weird. Then. It. I start getting all, <laughs> I start getting all mystical. On there. Like, hey, we're whispering sweet nothings to each other. That's right. What, what yeah. stop you we got that on? We may have whispered, but. I'm going to say we talked very loudly, uh, very deep voice. <laughs> Destroyed the quiet of yeah. the night. Okay, fine, <laughs> yes, fine, fine. Yeah. No, it was cool because Dustin has a different approach or uh, just so much more knowledge in different areas than I did. And so even though I'm quite competent with night photography with a digital camera, he has so much more knowledge uh, with the telescopes and deep space and nebulas and galaxies. And so... I was so excited to surround myself with somebody, both Dustin and Ginny, who had so much knowledge and that I felt like I could learn so much from. And yeah, we hit it off and I was really excited to get behind a telescope and see things that I'd never seen before and that are impossible to see with the naked eye. And so it just opened up a whole new world for me to to be able to peer into deep space and capture things that nobody nobody has been able to see in uh, previous generations so yeah it's been a really really incredible experience for me isn't that an interesting concept to say i'm taking pictures of things that previous generations never knew existed many never had the chance never had the possibility of seeing this and then we're just casually taking pictures of it you know and posting it to instagram and it's uh it's an unbelievable experience but it's 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 truly special Really is. It's true. Yeah. Even over a hundred years, just as little as a hundred years ago, maybe a little longer now, uh, we didn't even know there were other galaxies out right. in the universe besides exactly. our own. So yeah, what we what we know about and what is uh, open to us has definitely changed. I want to go to a comment you said just a minute ago about you always, you know, for some people taking images with a camera disconnects you from your surroundings. I guess in this day of everybody having a smartphone, you don't, do you still think, I mean, do you think it, it does bring in the, the observer uh, as part of the experience? Because it seems to me like it's more about the selfie than it is about <laughs> what you're seeing. I mean, I know this is a slightly different topic, but when you said the camera brought you into the surroundings, I think for most people, it's like they take them out of it. Do you agree or disagree? I would agree with that. I think it depends on the person and also maybe what they're capturing. But for me, because I'm so comfortable with the camera, I don't have to focus on the settings as much and getting everything dialed. I can kind of do all of that while still appreciating what I'm looking at and absorbing what I'm looking at and being present. So I know some people who can be very present while taking pictures and other people, yeah, if you're taking selfies or if you're talking to the camera or vlogging or other things, then you're obviously maybe not going to be quite as connected. But yeah, for me, that was a huge draw from the very beginning. It just made me really dive in and appreciate and slow down and absorb. So yeah, I think it's different for everybody. I don't know how you 
how you work with a camera, Dustin, and that, what that experience is for you. Yeah, I mean, I, I feel the same way. I'm, I'm certainly. I, I think I've said this several times on the times on the podcast before, but I'm a photographer at heart, and then astronomy gives me the hobby, right? Um, but with Trav, it's it really is the exact opposite of that. And it's something, it's probably the thing I respect most about you is that it doesn't take away from the experience and the experience is still very much what you're focused on every time you're out there. But it's not like, let me go out and then try to find a vision as I'm there. It's like, it's like watching painters where you can just see people that already have a vision and they're just expressing that. And so it's very much like intentional. There's something that is going to be captured and expressed. And that experience is the point. And um, it, it really is truly incredible to watch. You know, I've had friends my entire life that told me, it's like, one thing I hate about you, Dustin, is that you just go, 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 go <laughs> all the time. You're always going. But Trav is that for me. We go out and I'm just like, man, it is time to go to bed. And he's like, nope. <laughs> <laughs> we nope, just got we are started. Staying out another six hours, <laughs> and we are capturing all of it. I've got these things in my head, and we are capturing. You know, so Travis. And for me, I guess I don't have the opportunity to be surrounded with telescopes and different things like that all the time. So when I do, when it's a clear night, when there's no moon, when we're out in the desert, and when there's telescopes set up, I'm going to do everything I can to take advantage, full advantage of the opportunity to both capture and experience as much as possible. So yeah, I, I get excited. I, I push Dustin a little bit. But that's part of the fun. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, this push. is a, th standing outside in freezing weather in the middle of the desert and, you know, dodging rattlesnakes <laughs> or even on top of the old OPT building right. inside at night. Absolutely. Yeah. With cars driving by and yeah, we're just up there freezing and try not to step too hard on the roof. Cause it's going to vibrate the telescope and right. Yeah, there's been some fun adventures. There so, have, and you know, let's let's talk about the moonshot you did because that one has been seen by millions of people. Um, you came to OPT; it had to be two months in advance of that shot, and then you told me you were going to do it. You were like, "I have this vision of this huge supermoon, and then a father." And his child standing there in front of the moon with just this unbelievable scale, like on top of a mountain. And I was like, that sounds really cool. But that was the end of it for me. <laughs> but then the process started and he came back with all these calculations months later. It was almost time for the super moon. And um, I mean, locations had been scouted. People had been recruited. There were hiking trails up to the thing. There was this entire plan that had been developed for months. and then. I came out there sleepy just for the last part, just to watch you press the shutter. And you see all of this planning kind of unfold to where there's this five second gap where it perfectly lines up. And that shot that everybody has seen, and if you haven't seen it, go look at it right now on Travis's Instagram. But this thing lines up and it's on the back of the camera exactly how it looks on, uh, on the picture. People think this is photoshopped. No, this is planned. Uh, Travis, what's your Instagram? Fine. You got to tell people what the Instagram is. So. Yeah, it's just my name, Travis Burke Photography. B-U-R-K, right. E. B-U-R-K-E. -E. Right. Yeah, I mean, when you came back with all those calculations, I was like, this is unbelievable. Every detail down to the focal length of the different uh, lenses or even the telescopes you were using, all of this stuff and the 
uh, locations. It was all perfect. And then, I mean, it the moon came down to exactly where those people were standing. And it was as simple as just watching them press <laughs> the shutter button. And then it's like, there, there's the image that's going to break Instagram tomorrow. <laughs> Did it? Yeah, well, thank you. Yeah, that's actually been... Between so that image of the super blue blood moon that Dustin's been describing is my highest engaged and highest shared image ever on social media. And that was really cool for me, especially because it took so much planning, so much time. It was such a unique uh, just shot concept. And I knew it was going to be difficult. I didn't even know if it would be possible. But once we dove in, one of my good friends, David Hatfield, uh, he helped me with calculations and location scouting and all these things. We, we knew it would be extensive, but we had no idea it would be as extensive as it was. I mean, we were sitting there on Google Earth looking for locations. We knew we had to be a certain distance away and the models had to be a certain height to you know, align with the moon as it's starting to set, depending on what part of the country we're in. And we're doing geometry, like on scratch pieces of paper and trying to figure out, you know, different angles, different distances, and went out and rented like 600 millimeter lenses with 2x converters and then going out and trying to figure out how large the moon would be um, in correlation with the people, depending on how far away they were from the lens. And it was such a complex thing. And then knowing that we only had a few minutes because we wanted the super blue blood moon. We wanted it to be kind of in totality. So you get the red glow and it was on the right part of the horizon. And it was, we knew we had just a split second to get the shot and then the weather, the clouds are coming in and it was just so, so much work. But the reward of sitting there and seeing, mm -hmm. We had telescopes set up. We had long lenses for just digital cameras. And we had like three different angles and then a wide angle. Um, and yeah, watching after all that calculating, we're, we still didn't know if it would work the way that we hoped. And as the moon got closer and closer and Dustin was standing right behind us and yeah, just crossed perfectly behind um, the two models that we had. We had walkie talkies up there and some they had to climb this ladder to get on top of a rock and it was so extensive and here it is like four in the morning um and yeah just seeing it cross at that moment i think on my instagram there's a behind the scenes video showing the camera screen as it's passing across and we're kind of screaming and shooting photos and just so excited that it actually worked after months of planning and prepping and so to me that's what that's what made it so special is kind of the hard work that went into it. And yeah, it, there's a lot of people that could Photoshop that, but to me capturing it as a single image and, and just that whole experience and the hard work that was put into it and the whole team of people really, really made it like a once in a lifetime experience and a once in a lifetime image for me. So that was pretty special. Oh, that's a great story. Yeah. That, that was a lot of work. It sounds like went into that. Um, he could have used you there. Uh, you know, <laughs> yeah. he needed a physicist to come in there and be like, "Hey, I'm going to do these calculations for you. You need to know where the Earth rotating. Where's the Moon going to be exactly? Yeah, you know." And that it was just well, it sounds like it worked out perfectly. So that's it was so, crazy. It really was a couple seconds. I mean, it, the video that's on there shows. I mean, it's it's going by, and there was just maybe it had to be five, six seconds where you had to, you know, 
you had to, it had to be perfect because there's no time to, to change anything. You either get the shot or you don't. And so that's why, you know, it was David actually that you just mentioned that called me and he's like, Hey man, you want to wake up at 3 a.m. and come watch this all unfold? And I've just learned that when they call, just say yes. <laughs> Even though the answer to that question is always no. Like, I no, I don't want to get up at 3 a.m., <laughs> but I don't want to miss this epic adventure either, so I'll be there. <laughs> That's what, what did you say the, um, the focal length of the lens was you used? I think it ended up, we had multiple lenses, and even uh, Dustin gave us a telescope to connect one of our cameras to as well. I think it ended up being about the equivalent of 1,200 millimeters. Okay, and so that means you had a pretty, well, you had to have a field of view big enough to fit the moon in, but you, when you said, I'm going back to Dustin's comment, that it moved fast. You only had a couple seconds, and that's true. Right. That's why we have clock drives, and so we can follow these things as they move across the sky. You were stationary on the ground, and that moon was probably whipping by at the magnifications you were you were. Yeah, because it almost filled the whole frame. So I wanted to make sure that we had the the subjects, the the models in frame and in focus and everything. So I kept the camera kind of positioned on them and was just hoping that the moon that would, the come, moon would come by through, through the frame. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. yeah, that was the the challenge. There wow. was no wiggle room. It had to be just over half a degree field of view. I mean, it was it was barely fitting in there. It's the same kind of math that I'm sure they used for a lot of the ancient temples that were built to be able to line up and do those kinds of things uh, in ancient times. So my question to you, Travis, and you didn't say anything about this yet, uh, what sacrifice did you use to uh, make sure it was clear that night? I'm sure you had to do a sacrifice. What dance? Did you do a dance? Did you? <laughs> there was a dance. Yeah. Did you, yeah, did you do a dance. no cloud dance? Because <laughs> this is we, a one, there was, it's there a blood was moon. It's only one day. Coming in. Yeah, it was really crazy. I still can't believe because we had had gone out the couple nights previously to calculate and see the moon, you know, setting and trying. But every night the moon sets in a slightly different position yep. and, and four at, minutes at a later time. And uh, so, yeah, and then uh, everything was looking good, but there was still a lot of unknown variables. And then uh, there was quite a few clouds coming in the, the morning of at like 1, 1 a.m. And we thought the whole thing was going to be ruined by just a couple wispy clouds that were going to pass overhead. So yeah, there, there is a lot of, a uh, lot of dancing and praying to the gods and uh, yeah, just hoping it would all work out. And I don't know how we pulled it off, but yeah, it was definitely a special moment. Well, that's why they called me in Tony. Oh, was that your <laughs> yeah. job I'm there for the dancing? Ah, uh, you, the, yeah, you were the dancer. Good. Well, yeah. few, I guess, as I'm glad, I'm right. glad you pulled it off because clouds would have been disastrous uh, during that few moments that you had. I to, took care of it. It was yeah. no big deal. <laughs> All right, cool. Well, and uh, I just wanted to make one other side note about that whole project. Uh, like Dustin had said, we, it was some, a vision of mine for quite a few months previously when I, when I heard about the super blue blood moon and just because it was such a special event, I wanted it to be kind of bigger or more significant than just a picture, like something with a little bit more depth and a little bit more meaning behind it. So that's actually why I specifically chose for the models. Um, I chose a father and his daughter. And so they were up there. And to me, what that was kind of representing and what I kind of talked about and shared in the caption on my post was that just the importance, I think, of passing down and educating uh, the younger generation on 
environmental stuff or on space or just getting the younger generation outside and off of the electronics and all of that stuff. So for me, just trying to represent that in a single image and it's such a, a beautiful thing as the super blue blood moon and such a rare uh, phenomena was really cool to just, yeah, try and encapsulate all that into one picture. So that was kind of the concept behind the father and daughter is just, um, yeah, raising awareness, getting, getting the younger generation outside and kind of passing on how special this place is. How long have you been doing this, Travis? I picked up the camera on my road trip to Yosemite. I think it was 10 years ago, uh, with no experience of what anything camera related was and just dove in a hundred percent, like I said, and yeah. Well, um, I want to dive sure. in a little bit more to what you just said about, you know, the the importance of the environment and and things like that. In your 10 plus years of doing this, traveling the world, doing uh, outdoor photography, have you noticed, what have you um, noticed about the effect of, say, things like climate change or things like that on some of the places that you've been. Um, have you done any subjects or been to any places where they are substantially degraded or do you, do you not note those things you haven't been to? Do you understand what my question is? I'm trying to get a sense of how yeah. much you've noticed our environment having been changed over the course of the time you've been doing this. Yeah, that's a great question. And I would say there's quite a few changes that I've seen both with the environment and with the amount of people out exploring in nature and in the environments. Um, so to touch on the first part, visiting somewhere like Glacier National Park uh, in Montana, I've seen a huge difference in, and they talk about it quite a bit that within, I think, I think by 2022, or something uh, pretty soon, there will be no glaciers left Glacier in Glacier National, National Park. Yeah, I've heard that too. Um, I've seen the time lapses. Yeah. And so just um, going there and, and seeing the changes over the years and just knowing how quickly uh, something like that is changing is pretty shocking. The other part of that is I've seen a huge um, change in the amount of people out exploring these landscapes. And there's pros and cons to that. A lot of it is social media and people like myself encouraging others to get outside and see these beautiful places. But it also can have a negative impact on the environment, on the location, on um, just the different plants and trees and animals and everything around. So it's something that a lot of places are having to take into consideration now is trying to figure out how to better manage thousands and thousands of people coming to these places every year because it's had a pretty significant and somewhat negative impact on the environment. So, All right. Well, when, with respect to the photographs, the, the taking images, you and Dustin spend a lot of time at the telescope together. What sort of setup do you have? Um, are you, uh, is there a preferred uh, setup you'd like to use, Travis, for Taking photos, and, and you too, Dustin. Do, do, do you have a preferred sort of go-to setup when you're going to have a night behind the camera? I'll let you start. Yeah, for me, I'm still pretty new to the whole telescope and deep space imaging world. I I started out by 
like uh, enjoying connecting my actual digital camera to the back of a telescope because that's what I was familiar and comfortable with. Uh, but it's been really exciting and challenging to uh, convert over to like CCD cameras and dive into that whole world because I feel like it's a whole different language that I've had to learn and understand and be able to process. So for me, uh, I'm fortunate enough to be able to hang out with Dustin and a lot of the other people uh, at OPT and go to different meetups and events. And so I don't have a dedicated system that I use all the time because I'm still experimenting with different setups, with different focal lengths, um, different apertures, and trying to figure out what makes the most sense for me, what type of deep space objects I like to photograph. I think the uh, nebulas are in, I don't know. I, I tend to go a little bit more towards nebulas and galaxies. That seems to be more intriguing to me so far. But yeah, it's it's hard for me to choose one specific setup. But you mostly use so DSLRs, it sounds like, right? A decent amount. And I have been using the CCD cameras now quite a bit. But the editing, the whole process is so much different that I'm still experimenting with that process. But yeah, for me, that using a DSLR is just so much easier uh, to capture and process because it's more the world that I come from. Sure, and that's that's one of the things I want to talk to you about in a second is um, the transition from photographer to astrophotographer. Whether it's just um, you know going from landscape to astro landscape with star trails or Milky Way or whatever, that's a pretty big jump. But deep space is a huge jump. It's almost an entirely different hobby. Yeah. You know, I mean, the processing is different. The acquisition is different. The planning is different. And certainly the time commitment is different. But um, I'll answer your question first, Tony. And um, yeah, so when I'm shooting with Trav, it's always, like I said, there's always a a vision. So he always has a plan. So we usually build the system for that plan. You know, if the, if the idea is, I want a high res shot of Andromeda, we're going to pick a focal length. We're going to pick a sensor. We're going to pick an entire rig that is built for that purpose. Um, for my daily shooting, I, uh, I switch systems a lot. I am definitely a refractor guy. I, uh, I absolutely love refractors. So my, my home system, the one I keep outside all the time, and I just turn it on at night when I get home, is um, a 125 millimeter refractor, Apo refractor. But then in my observatory, I have a huge plane wave reflector. And Trav and I shoot that one quite a bit. Uh, we've actually got a project we're working on now with that one. But that's a big 17-inch scope. So, I mean, when this thing stands up, it's 12 feet tall on the mount. You know, it's huge. Um, but that gives us a lot more reach. So a lot more resolution on target, you know, a little bit better color correction and those types of things. It's quite a bit slower than my other scope. But, um, you know, when we run it remotely from anywhere in the world, it doesn't really matter. We set it up and we can go to sleep and, you know, we wake up to that perfect data. So, um, I mean, those are the two scopes I'm using right now. But I mean, the truth is, you know, when people ask me what the perfect scope is, I tell them it's, we've got, you know, we got to have 2000 different scopes here in the building. <laughs> and these are the scopes that made the cut and they made the cut for 
a reason. You know, people have all these ideas. All these manufacturers have so many ideas for different telescopes. These are the ones that made the cut. And the reason they made the cut is because each one of these is the right scope for some purpose. And, um, you know, it's just like camera lenses. There's a right scope for the job, depending on what the job is. And did you want to also go into the transition between a photographer and astrophotographer now? Yeah. Yeah. I think that's the big question that I have because okay. um, it's a pretty, <laughs> it's a substantial commitment going into astrophotography. But, um, you know, I've gotten the chance to watch you really do it at the pro level on both sides. If you look at your deep space stuff and you look at your Milky Way stuff, it's, it's every bit as good as you know, your I'm going to Thailand stuff or, or wherever you end up in the world. And I think that that's not a seamless transition for a lot of people. How have you made that a smooth transition? Yeah, that's a great question. And it is a whole, there's just the terminology, the equipment, the software, everything is completely different. And again, I've been fortunate enough to be surrounded by some of the top people in the industry getting into this. And, but I think that's helped as well. If you can get out to meetups or uh, even listening to podcasts or watching YouTube tutorials, any way to to dive in as much as you can and be surrounded and absorb as much information as possible is the way that you're going to progress the fastest. Uh, and for me, it's been a, just a mixture of that. Everything from being out with different people, learning the terminology, learning how to use the gear and the all of the different software. And then for the editing process, I think what's helped me the most is actually watching the OT, OPT uh, videos on how to edit different types of images, depending on what type of scope you're using and what you're processing, how you want to process. So because it's all step-by-step, because step, it's so extensive that I haven't fully memorized the steps. So when it's broken down in such an easy way, like the step-by-step -step process, I can sit there and kind of do it side-by-side -side with them. And for me, that's been the easiest way, especially on that processing side to, to kind of lock that in. So Tony, you know how, um, with visual astronomy, mm -hmm. you have certain targets where, you know, if you show somebody this in a telescope, they're going to be blown away. We've talked about this before, but Saturn is certainly one. It's always those a biggie. Yeah. You show somebody Saturn. I mean, I've seen a lot of people cry when they look through the telescope. <laughs> and Saturn for the first time. I mean, it's true. That's not an exaggeration. Um, I think when you're looking at deep space, there are a lot of targets that if you're not in the right location with the right size scope, some can be a little bit disappointing, um, especially if there's a lot of light pollution. Some targets that are amazing in some places can be a little disappointing in others, especially uh, deep space objects. But usually one that's really safe and that people love to see would be the ring nebula. Right. I mean, that one right. usually stands out. And when you find it, you know, you found it. That's it right. Pops. Right. What do you guys think the targets are for new astrophotographers? Like, what's the target, Travis, that when you shot it the first time and you saw it, it's like, oh, I'm hooked. This is amazing. <laughs> what do you think that target is? Is it the moon? Is it an Andromeda? What is it? For me, I think there's two that really stand out. And I think we were lucky enough and just the right time of year and location to, to capture those both my first night. Um, one is Andromeda Galaxy. Obviously, it's the closest galaxy to us and you can see it with your naked eye if you're in a dark place but it's just like 
seeing that come up when you capture it for the first time, just how bright and vivid and detailed it is to me, that one got me hooked right away. And then the second one would be the Orion Nebula. That's another oh, very bright one. Yeah. And I've, I just, even growing up, I knew what the Orion constellation was. And so it was just a easy one to shoot. And I kind of knew the, a little bit of backstory behind it. And, um, yeah, so that one, I think Andromeda and Orion were the ones that have a lot of wow factor and are pretty easy to capture. So those ones got me super excited. I'd agree. Orion was probably the, the nebula that hooked me even with visual astronomy. Looking at the Orion Nebula through a telescope is amazing. Mm -hmm. You know, it really is. There's two kinds, I think, of objects that you can best get uh, in in the night sky. One of them is are those things that will fit into a frame or in the field of view of your telescope. Things like planets, uh, the Ring Nebula is a good example. But what about, you said you one of the things that you were attracted to as your first object was the Andromeda Galaxy. Now, the Andromeda Galaxy is six degrees across the sky. Yeah. So did you have, do you, do you do anything with mosaics or moving the telescope around to get the entire object onto a frame? That's a really good question. A lot of the focal lengths that I've used so far have been able to capture the whole object in one frame. We are work, Dustin and I are working on a, uh, a mosaic right now that, um, I don't know how much you want to talk about it, but it's a pretty yeah. extreme mosaic that uh, I'm really, really, I think we're both really, really excited about. And it'll be, I think that'll be my first mosaic. Um, uh, yeah, you're diving right in. So it's a 28 <laughs> panel mosaic, the highest resolution ground image of Andromeda ever taken. By amateurs. <laughs> Good. Oh wow! I did not know I had stumbled on that. That was a complete accident. <laughs> but, <Yeah. laughs> but what I was, where I was initially going with that was, I was going to ask you if you had heard about this uh, image of the Milky Way galaxy that was taken in the mid '90s by a guy named Axel Mellinger, and it was an all-sky uh, image of the Milky Way taken over the course of I think two years. He went around the wow. globe to get tiny pictures and, and there's an entire image of the Milky Way, all sky image of the Milky Way from around the globe. And so the point I was getting to was with big objects like the Milky Way or the Andromeda Galaxy, it won't all fit. And even the and Orion Nebula won't all fit into some fields of view and magnifications. So mm -hmm. what, Dustin, maybe you're the best person asked for this since you work with telescopes more in this arena. Sure. How, what do you do to get Let's say I don't want to do a big mosaic like what you're doing with Andromeda, but something else. I want to get all of it in. What's a good technique for doing that? How do you do it? So most people start with the camera they already have, right? And then right. usually the, the DSLR that they have or the mirrorless camera they have, most of them are going to be APS-C size sensors or full frame. You know, even micro four thirds, the smaller sensor. These are all fairly large sensors. And so... As long as people aren't shooting on super long focal lengths, like I know the shot that Travis was first taking was on 300 millimeters. The telescope was 300 millimeters. And so with something like that, you're going to be shooting very, very wide and you're still going to have to crop in to get Andromeda. I mean, the scope I'm using at home now is 800 millimeters, which is fairly long for a refractor. Um, you think about a camera lens, most telephoto lens that you see people shooting sports or whatever, what are they, 200 millimeters, maybe 400 millimeter, millimeters? I mean, this is 800 
and I can still get the whole galaxy in there. It's when people start trying to shoot at three meters, you know, 3000 millimeters focal length on big Smith Cassegrains or anything like that, where you have to really have a big sensor or you have to, um, you know, put a reducer on or do something to pull that focal length back to get the whole thing in the frame. And you also have to worry about whenever you change things like that, things like pixel scale and, all, and a bunch of other technical things. Oh, it, is, you, it can become a mess yeah. very quickly. You really do need to think long and hard about the kind of image you want to take. But I want to take a step back now, Travis, and go to something simple. I love looking, and this is an Instagrammable thing. I've seen so many of them. I love looking at these time lapses that people take. Give me advice. I want to take a beautiful time-lapse photo of the night sky going across, whether it's a moon rising, I don't know what, I just, how do I do it? What do I need to do that? I want to make one. Yeah, that's a really good question. And there are multiple ways to do it, but a lot of the cameras these days are set up to be able to do a time-lapse in camera. And, and if it's not, you just need a small remote, it's called an intervalometer. And I still use one of those. I think it's just become easier for me to set it up and get, get everything. Intervalometer? Intervalometer, yes. Okay. And, and it comes with the camera. It doesn't come with the camera. Oh. Some of them are built into the cameras, but oh. some of them are like a little accessory that you can get for $20 on Amazon or different camera stores. Okay. Um, and basically all you're trying to do, you need to set your shutter speed, ISO, all of those things as if you were taking a single night photograph just make sure that the stars are exposed the way you want it. Everything looks good. And then you basically just want to take a bunch of those photos. So having the right system, like the intervalometer, that'll allow you to take, you know, hundreds of those same exposures over the course of the night. Well, I just want to know, give me numbers. What, what kind of lens should I put in my camera and what, what ISO sh setting should I use? Let's say I've just got a, I don't know, a Canon EOS camera, just, you know, a $300 camera that I bought at, at Walmart and I want to, I put it up on a tripod and I want a good time-lapse. What kind of lens do I need and what setting should I put on? Yeah, the settings uh, will be the same, whether you want a time-lapse or just a single photo of the Milky Way. Um, if you're taking a photo of the moon, it'll probably be different because the moon's really bright. So you might have a different shutter speed and settings, but let's just pretend you want a shot of the Milky Way galaxy and, or a time-lapse of the Milky Way galaxy. The settings that I typically will start with, if I'm in a dark location without a lot of light pollution would be about 25 seconds on the shutter speed, the ISO Anywhere between 3,200 and 6,400, depending on what your camera can handle. Wow, really high. And then, yeah, really high. That's what's allowing a lot of light to go in. And then the aperture, you want the lowest possible, uh, depending on your lens, something like 2.8, 2 hopefully. Mm -hmm. um, and those are my go-to settings. I'm usually on a very wide-angle lens, something like a 14-millimeter, because I like to capture some of the landscape and then the night sky, as much of the Milky Way galaxy as possible. So wide angle lens, high ISO of like 3200, low aperture of 2.8, and the shutter speed being around 25 or 30 seconds. Well, in a, a super wide lens like that allows you to do a longer exposure too, right? Without yes. seeing the stars start to trail. 
And you said yeah, that about 25 seconds. You can you can get that in without seeing the trails? Yeah, on a super wide lens. But if you had a 50 or an 85 millimeter, you'd have to cut that way back. Okay. So- and there are apps that have calculators that you type in the focal length of your lens and your ISO, and it'll calculate what your shutter can be. Um, and different things like that. Oh, I did not know that. So there's apps. Of course there are. What What am I saying? Of course there's apps. <laughs> there's apps for everything. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> why, why am I even surprised? Okay. So I could, all right, well, I'd, I'd much prefer asking an expert. So I'm glad I did. So thanks for, thanks for that advice. Cause I love these things. You see them everywhere. And yeah. I, I always said, well, they must be easy to do. Um, I just wondered what the settings would be and what kind of lens, because that's always the part that confuses me. Yeah, definitely. And I I wanted to kind of go back to the topic we had talked about earlier, um, kind of overcrowding in different parks. And it also stems to how I got, I guess, into night photography as a whole. Um, So I figured I'd share that. But basically, I was already shooting photos and a lot of landscape type images. And I had gone... I was on a road trip through Utah and I made it out to Arches National Park in Utah, which has incredible night skies and just a beautiful landscape in general. So I did this hike out to Delicate Arch, which is a famous arch there in the park for sunset. And there was probably, this is quite a few years ago, but there was at least 50 to 75 people all out there trying to get the sunset, waiting for sunset with the arch. And it was beautiful, but it was kind of a little bit chaotic to just be around that many people. You didn't quite have the same peaceful, serene experience as you might in other landscapes when you're kind of out there all alone or just sharing it with somebody, one of your close friends. And it was a beautiful sunset and everybody, you know, got their shots. And then as soon as the sun went down, everybody left, like within minutes, everybody, it's a fairly long, like three, (laughs) it's at least like a three mile hike. And as soon as that sun dropped, every single person left. And I was standing there by myself and I was like, well, this is kind of cool. I'm going to try and take some shots of the stars and just play around with some night photography. And so I waited for it to get dark enough to where the stars came out and set up my camera and tripod and had my flashlight and headlamp and I was just completely alone out there. And I started to photograph the Milky Way. It was in the summertime. So temperatures were nice. There was no moon. The Milky Way came up and I was able to line it up to where the Milky Way was right behind Delicate Arch. Like you could see the Milky Way through it. And I was having a blast. This was one of my first night photography experiences. And I was experimenting with different settings. I would put a self timer and run all the way around and try and be under the arch and do like a self portrait of me standing under the arch. (laughs) And I was having a blast and I was excited about the photos and just being out there alone. It was just such a perfect experience. And I nailed, you know, one of the shots I was really happy with. And then I just hung out for a while and trying to soak it in. And I was like, well, I'm out here. Like what other types of shots can I get? So I was playing around with different angles And there was a bunch of shooting stars at night and I was just kind of laughing to myself the whole time. Just like, this is incredible. (laughs) Everybody's sleeping. And here I am having the experience of a lifetime. Like nobody's around. I can see what was cool to me is I was seeing not only the landscape. If you go there during the day, you see the beautiful arch 
you have the blue sky and maybe some white puffy clouds, but being there at night and it was so dark, there were so many stars. I was able to see, even with my naked eye, you could see the whole landscape perfectly. So I not only was seeing the landscape, but I was seeing the entire universe like around it. And I was like, this is so much more amazing than just seeing it with the blank sky behind me. So I was just laughing, like nobody knows what they're missing. Everyone's asleep. I'm out here just enjoying this all to myself. And next thing you know, I was taking a couple shots, getting set up for another shot. And I'm like, what's going on with the sky? Like, why does it look weird? It was like lighter. Something was different. I took a couple more shots and it was lighter again. And I didn't even realize I had stayed up through the entire night and sunrise was starting to happen and the sun was coming up. And so I could no longer see the Milky Way. And I had no, I thought it had only been like an hour that I'd been out there, but I was having such a good time that I stayed up through the entire night and was now there for sunrise. And that kind of just blew my mind how, how fast it went. And so I took a couple shots for sunrise and decided to hike back to the car started to get a little bit tired once I realized how late it was. <laughs> and as I'm walking back, here comes just crazy amounts of people starting to hike up the trail hmm. to be there to get the sunrise shot. And again, I was just laughing like these people, you know, are hiking out to get what they think is like the best shot or be there for this sunrise experience. And I was like this experience that I had there at night and seeing the Milky Way and all the stars and the shooting stars, I was like, that was so much of a better experience than anything I had seen for sunrise or sunset. And so I was just kind of laughing to myself and saying good morning to everyone that was coming up. And I was like, wow, I really scored that place like mm -hmm. the best that you possibly can. And that was what kind of hooked me on the night photography. And so I kind of repeated that same thing and would show up to these landscapes and stick around through the night and photograph them. And even at some of the most famous places in the country or in the world, you can still show up and be out there at night and be the only ones out there and create some beautiful images. So that's part of the intrigue for me for just night photography and experiencing the world at night in general. And it sounds like you don't have lots of telescope equipment. You're just setting up your camera, your your normal photography rig. That's what it sounds like. Yeah, a lot of times it is just my normal camera. And I have different, uh, like a small tracking system that I can put on just my DSLR camera for longer exposures. But a lot of the locations I hike out to are, are remote. So I like the wide field of view and capturing the Milky Way and doing star trails and, and things like that. So, um, I've been doing that for years yeah, and it's been just pretty recent that I've that had access to the telescopes to start shooting more of the deep space stuff. You know, it's, it's one of the coolest things you do. It's always sad when I see it, every time you do it, I'm like, Oh, that's, that's painful <laughs> to look at, but it is, um, it, it did lead to something that I, I really respect that you do. But recently I went to the grand Canyon. I had exactly the same experience. I mean, there's so many people there during the day that it's just like, you can't have the same experience. Mm -hmm. You can't, it's not even close, but I was out there at probably two in the morning, three in the morning, taking night shots with the, the grand Canyon with the stars and everything overhead. And it was 
it was just us. It was two of us. I mean, it's just unbelievable. You know, you've got the whole thing to yourself and the view is so much better yeah. at night. It's unreal. And, um, yeah, I mean, but then as soon as the sun comes back up, there it is. Everybody floods. And, uh, you do these Instagram stories where you say, here's the shot. And then here's reality. <laughs> and he turns the camera. So you've got this beautiful landscape shot during the day. And then he turns the camera slightly to the side and there's a thousand people there's standing the, there's there. There's the crowd. <laughs> standing there with their, you know, their McDonald's bags and everything else. <laughs> selfie and, sticks. Yeah, selfie everywhere. sticks and, and the whole thing. But it kind of led you to start doing these posts where you say, out of respect for the locals, out of the respect for this area, I'm not going to disclose the location of where I got this shot. And I was like, good for you, man. Cause I see in the comments, people are living vicariously through you. You know, you have this massive following and people want to know, they want to know, I'm going to go to this place. A lot of the places you shoot and out of respect for that area, you don't tell the people that are there following you where it is. And it's like, what a great thing to do to still share the beauty with everybody, but to not say, bring your McDonald's bags here, you know, because the following is so huge. You're right. I mean, a lot of people, that's what does cause people to, to flood these areas. Every time my phone blows up, you know, my battery dies in like 30 seconds. I'm like, Oh, Travis must've tagged me in something, <laughs> right? Cause my, my phone's going nuts. Um, but yeah, I mean, if you have that many people that see it, that's exactly what happens. You know, these are the spots and you can see how epic and beautiful it is. I'm not saying people shouldn't experience, but man, some of these places are just too perfect to, to destroy. Yeah. Too perfect or sometimes too, uh, fragile or maybe hard to access, or they just wouldn't be able to handle the amount of people and foot traffic, um, that would potentially happen when it's exposed to thousands or potentially millions of people. So yeah, it became, it's just something I think we all have to think about because even the national parks are starting to potentially go to lottery systems where even like Zion national park, I believe is thinking about, uh, utilizing a lottery system to even get into the park because there's just too many people. Um, so just trying to be respectful of that, like Dustin said, both the environment and for the locals, because it's just getting so crowded. Yeah, just uh, experiencing those places at night too. The part of the adventure for me is finding these more hidden gems. And yeah, there's getting less and less of those out there. So if you can, mm-hmm. if you can find a place and have it all to yourself and have that special experience, it's sometimes hard to want to share that location with yeah hundreds of thousands of people. Um, but also encouraging them to get out there and right. do some research and get on Google earth. And, and I, I do see both sides, uh, because a lot of people will tell me like, I'm, I'm coming from Europe or from some other country. This is my, my one week to travel and experience the United States. And I just really want to go to this place and experience the beauty of this place. Uh, like why won't you give the location away? And so, yeah, it's, it's, it's challenging, but at the same time, I've seen some really beautiful places have a, um, just kind of get trashed or just kind of overtaken by people. And I feel bad because I'm showing up to other people's backyards, other people's favorite areas. And I don't really think it's fair for me to announce to the world where it is and how awesome it is. And 
I mean, just imagine if you had some special place that was your little getaway uh, close to your house or somewhere you've been going since you were a kid, or maybe uh, your your parents took you there and it was a little special place. And the next thing you know, you show up and there's 50 people there with tripods and selfie sticks and mm-hmm. um, not necessarily doing anything wrong, wanting to capture the experience, but it just totally changes the atmosphere yeah. of a place. So just trying to be respectful of all of that. Or you can just be an astrophotographer and never worry about that again because you'll be the only one out there. Yeah, yeah that's true. You'll be the only one out there. The lone, the under the stars. Yeah. I, I, we were almost out of time, but I want to just ask you, how? what is your thought process for exploring a place? How do you find the places that everybody wants to know where it is? That, I mean, you. What do you? how do you think about where to go next? That's a great question. And for me, it's just a mixture of everything. It's a lot of, I spend a lot of time researching locations, anything from Google Earth and Google Maps or even Pinterest. I use Instagram to see, you know, new locations that are being discovered or just new countries that I really hadn't seen any imagery come out of before. And then uh, maybe seen, you know, area and diving in through Google Earth and really looking at unique angles or what's out there. And for me, like I said, I love to do the astro and night photography at these landscapes. So it makes it even more of a challenge to find these places that you might not have very much information on and then figure out how to photograph that at night and the moon phases and where the moon will be up or where the Milky Way will be rising or what type of angles will work to capture capture the whole scene, but then also adding the other element of the stars and the Milky Way and the moon. So I spend a lot of time. I use different apps that can calculate where and when the sun will come up, where the moon will come up and all of those different things. So it's a really lengthy and extensive process that always changes depending on the location, but there is a lot of time and energy put into uh, almost all the shots that I get. So that's, that's part of the fun for me is that challenge <laughs> of, of trying to make it all come together. And sounds image. like it. Okay. Well, uh, Dustin, I think we're done. I think we got another one in. Yeah, no, these are so much fun. These are so much fun. <laughs> and uh, I just, some of this stuff is, I don't know. All of it is amazing. I mean, talking to Space Fab, talking to Travis here, yeah. just everybody that we're talking to, these are these are incredible. Right. So I want to thank you, Travis. Our guest today was Travis Burke. He is an outdoor adventure photographer. He is an outdoor adventure photographer. Uh, and you can follow him. He's, I'm sure you've probably seen his photos on many different publications, but you can follow him on Instagram um, at Travis Burke, B-U-R-K-E, and uh, see what his latest adventures are. Um, And he's been working closely with Dustin at OPT to take pictures uh, of the night sky. And I am psyched about this upcoming mosaic that you guys are building. I can't wait to see (laughs) that unveil. It's going to be something. (laughs) We should do a hangout on that one, Dustin. Yeah, (laughs) When it becomes available. Absolutely. We'll be... uh... We'll be posting it. I'm sure we'll be printing it huge. You don't take a mosaic that big not to print it uh, anything other than massive. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> All right. Well, then we're going to stop the podcast there, folks. I want to thank everybody for listening. Thank you. Thank you, Travis, and for and Dustin, my co-host. We will be, this is a weekly podcast, so we'll be back next week. And if you want to leave comments or questions to us, you can do that by following us on uh, OPT Corp at Instagram, as well as their Facebook page. My, I am on, I am Deep Astronomy almost everywhere on, on social media. 
media. And uh, we you can also leave comments and questions uh, in audio form on Anchor FM. So please do that, and we will try to take questions as we build some up, a repertoire of these things, and we will address them on the podcast. So on behalf of, Tra- uh, of Travis Burke and Dustin Gibson, I want to thank you all so much for listening. And as always, keep looking up. Space Junk was produced by OPT Telescopes in Carlsbad, California, in partnership with Deep Astronomy. Please send feedback and questions to spacejunk at deepastronomy.com.